I mentioned at the beginning of the last session that <clears throat> it's a very persistent myth among mankind, and going back as far as you want to go, that man is basically good. Um, I did briefly come across something in a commentary about Genesis that made reference to the fact that in the histories of the ancient civilizations, even they were not willing to admit that there's something wrong with man. It's as if that throughout history, the reality of the fall and the effects of the fall have been as thoroughly suppressed and scrubbed as we can make it. And so it's fitting that at the very beginning of Genesis, as God begins to record his word in writing, that he tells us about this fall as if to make sure that it's not forgotten and lost. Now, as it regards the state of man, the surveys tell us that man is basically good. And you might naturally expect that if you were to ask the next logical question, how is it that we get to heaven? The answer is, by our good works. And who's going to heaven? Well, of course I am. And why are you going to heaven? Because I think I've done more good than bad in my life. And that God is going to look at me and say, you did well enough, come on in. But after what we discussed in the last section, it ought to be the case that we couldn't abide that idea that God doesn't put our good and our bad works in a balance, so to speak, and say, well, as long as it tips just slightly in the direction of something that's good, then man has earned his salvation. The problem is actually pretty severe. If you were tracking with what we were describing in the last session, you would understand if I said if we put our works in the balance how would it work out? And the answer is that all of our works would be on only one side of the scale, and that's all bad. There's nothing on the good side of the scale, literally nothing. And you might say, well, I'm really trying. I'm doing all these things. I'm serving God and so forth. But the problem is, as soon as you scratch the surface, you begin to discover that the reason that you're serving God is so that you can try to please Him, that you think that by your works you can please Him. And I always find this rule to be the case in my own instance that as soon as I realize how humble I am, I discover that there's a little bit of pride just underneath the surface. And that's our problem. That because of the fallenness, because of the effects of the fall, because of the effects of the curse, we really are utterly disabled and unable to do any good works. But there's nothing more American, I suppose, than thinking that you're basically good, that man is basically good, and that, of course, because you're basically good, of course, you're going to go to heaven. And that's a terrible deception. That is one of the serpent's lies, that you are saved by your good works. As we said last time, we ought to have this verse in our mind in Matthew chapter 5 and verse 48, where Jesus says, be perfect even as your heavenly Father is perfect. That's the standard. And you might say, well, I wasn't quite perfect yesterday. 
And then the response is, well, then it's too late. You can't be saved by your works if you admit even a slight imperfection. Now, when we look at how Scripture describes salvation, there are different ways that it refers to it. And one of the words that we often use, and we may not think of it in its original usage, but we use the word redemption. What do we mean by that? Anybody in here use coupons? You redeem coupons or redeem credits or something of that sort? It's a monetary idea, isn't it? It's a monetary transaction. And in fact, in more than one place, Scripture refers to the Lord as the Redeemer. And what does that mean? The question is if man has lost his ability to gain heaven by his works, then what is it going to take? What is going to be the price that's necessary to get him into heaven? And there's a verse in Psalm 49 that I'd like you to consider. In verses 7 through 9, we read, Truly, no man can ransom another or give to God the price of his life. For the ransom of their life is costly and can never suffice that he should live on forever and never see the pit. Now, it seems pretty clear that what we're talking about is the ransom that's going to keep you out of the judgment of God. And what can one man pay on another man's behalf to turn aside, to, to get that person out of jail, so to speak? And the answer is, there's nothing that you can pay. The price is too high for one man to try to ransom the soul of the other. So we have this dilemma. Not only we can't save ourselves, but we cannot turn to the efforts of someone else to save us. We can't ask, as it were, for a letter of referral from our friend or maybe our pastor to get us into heaven. So we're left with this dilemma. How is the rebel, who has now fallen and under the effects of the curse, going to be reconciled to his creator? Is it even possible? Well, we just read a short time ago in the story of the rich young ruler The rich young ruler wasn't rich enough to get himself into heaven. He was rich enough to love his riches and be unwilling to let go of them. He might have had just a little bit of covetousness that needed to be dealt with, a little bit of idolatry. But his riches weren't going to get him into heaven. We saw also the story of the rich man and Lazarus. The rich man thought he was doing pretty well. But it didn't go well for him after his death. How are we to be reconciled? Well, let's start with the negative. And here I'll point you back to Romans 3.20. We read this verse just a few moments ago. It bears repeating. Where Paul says, after going through this litany of sins, the judgment against the fallenness of man, Jew and Gentile both being condemned in their sins 
For by the works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes the knowledge of sin. It's not going to happen by the works of the law. And where we see that human effort, just a moment ago we were looking at the fact that after the fall, Adam and Eve realized what? They were naked and they were ashamed. They were guilty. And they attempted to cover their guilt with fig leaves. And the fig leaves proved entirely inadequate to cover their guilt. It was not sufficient. So we come to this conclusion that the opportunity to be saved by works is lost. But God in His gracious plan of salvation has made it possible for us to be saved by grace through faith in Christ. So we have to turn to the works of another, the innocent substitute, as Mark just read there at the end of Genesis chapter 3. That the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. Or as I would say it, there was death in the garden. The death that Adam and Eve deserved was turned aside to them and directed at a substitute. In this case, an animal. We're not told it was a sheep, but we might suspect that it was. We also see, back in verse 15, in terms of the promise, looking at the strife that now exists between the seed of the man, uh, the seed of the serpent, and the seed of the woman, that that day will come when the seed of the woman will crush the head of the serpent. So there is this promise of a victorious event. And we begin to see the picture of it at the end of this chapter when God makes skins for Adam and Eve. It's certainly not the fulfillment yet. We might add to that what we read at the beginning of Hebrews, chapter 10, which is that the blood of bulls and goats cannot take away sin. And if I can find my book of Hebrews, I'll turn to that. Here we go. So what then? Hebrews 10, verse 4, It is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. We have these sacrifices. What was the point of the sacrificial system that began in the garden that was followed, as we see in the very next chapter, by Abel who offered a sacrifice that was acceptable to God and continued on. It was more formally instituted, we might say, in the law of Moses several thousand years later with that sacrificial system, what's the point of that bloody system if all those sacrifices don't take away sin? They must be pointing to something. And by now it should be no surprise to say that these things are pointing forward to the one perfect sacrifice that will be accomplished by Christ on the cross. 
Here we are in the garden. Depending on whose chronology you like best, perhaps 4,500 years B.C. So several thousand years before Christ comes. But we already have the beginnings of this redemption. There's another passage that I'd like to look at in the book of Genesis. It's one of those kind of unseemly passages, not the worst of them. But it's not what you would call a great moment for our patriarchs. And that's found in Genesis chapter 27. In Genesis chapter 27, we have... Isaac blessing Jacob. But that's not quite what he intended to do. Because he intended to bless Esau, but what did Rebekah and Jacob do? Hatched a little plan to make sure that Jacob would be the one who gets the blessing. Let me pick up the narrative in verse 18. So he went into his father and said, My father. And he said, Here I am. Who are you, my son? Jacob said to his father, I am Esau, your firstborn. I have done as you told me. Now sit up and eat of my game that your soul may bless me. But Isaac said to his son, How is it that you have found it so quickly, my son? He answered, and this is blasphemy, Because the Lord your God granted me success. Then Isaac said to Jacob, Please come near that I may feel you, my son, to know whether you are really my son Esau or not. So Jacob went near to Isaac, his father, who felt him and said, The voice is Jacob's voice, but the hands are the hands of Esau. And he did not recognize them because his hands were hairy like his brother Esau's hands, because why he had been covered in skins. So he blessed him and he said, Are you really my son Esau? He answered, I am. Then he said, Bring it near to me that I may eat of my son's game and bless you. So he brought it near to him and he ate and he brought him wine and he drank. Then Isaac, then his father Isaac said to him, Come near and kiss me, my son. So he came near and kissed him. And Isaac smelled the smell of his garments and blessed him and so forth. See, the smell of my son is as the smell of the field that the Lord has blessed. Because why? He's wearing his brother's clothes. He's been clothed in skins to simulate the hairy skin of his brother. He's wearing his brother's clothes that has the smell of the fields on it. His father suspects that something's a little off here, but nevertheless, his father is convinced in the end that this really is Jacob and not Esau. Esau, okay, thank you. Now again, this is not what you would call a a great example to follow, but it does illustrate an interesting idea that here is the younger brother impersonating, as it were, the older brother by taking his older brother's clothes upon himself 
so that his father will see not the younger son, but the older. That does have a familiar ring to it. It's interesting that throughout the book of Genesis, from from really chapter 3 onward, chapter 2 onward, this idea of clothing has such significance over and over again. And it becomes also a picture of salvation. And this is a case here where, as it were, if we put on the skins of our elder brother, the skins of righteousness, that when the Father draws us near, that He sees His elder Son who perfectly performed all the works of the law rather than the sin and the shame that those skins are covering in ourselves. Let's take a look at 1 Corinthians 15. We've heard this idea that Adam was the representative of the human race when he was made and placed in the garden and given a law and disobeyed. Somebody might say that it's not fair that Adam sinned and now I'm guilty of Adam's sin, but the fallacy is thinking that any one of us would have done better. The idea of representation is not a strange idea, certainly not to Americans. We have what's called a representative form of government. We delegate certain people to represent us. So this is very much like that. And we have, you might say, the first representation, Adam, the first man, who didn't do so well in his representation, which then necessitates a second man, And we see an example of that in 1 Corinthians 15. Let's look at 49 through uh, 45 through 49. Thus it is written: the first man Adam became a living living being; the last man became a life-giving spirit. But it's not the spiritual that is first, but the natural, and then the spiritual. The first man was from the earth, a man of dust. The second man is from heaven. As was the man of dust, so also are those who are of the dust. And as is the man of heaven, so also are those who are of heaven. Just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. Adam represented it at first, at the beginning, created in the perfect image of God, lost much of that by his fall. And we now see Jesus coming as the second man or the last man to do what Adam failed to do the first time. And we might say far more for paying the price for sin. Take a look also at verses 21 and 22 in the same chapter. We read, for as a man, by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection 
of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. I might add a footnote here that as we see this contrast between the first man, Adam, and the last man, Christ, what begins to happen to our apologetic of Christianity if we say, well, the first man, Adam, wasn't really a man, he was just a myth. The whole narrative falls apart. Everything depends upon that. I might also point out something obvious like the genealogy that traces the genealogy of Jesus all the way back to Adam. So we have these historical figures, the first man and the last man. Christ fulfills the law. He perfectly obeys the law. This is where we see justice and mercy meeting. We see the wrath of God that's being poured out on Christ, absorbing the penalty for sin so that he can then turn around and have mercy on those who deserve judgment. When we begin to understand the import of the work of Christ, it's not just absurd, but it's foolish to think that we could add anything to it to improve it. It's an affront to God if He has provided all that's necessary for salvation for us to say, but whoa, 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 let me, let me do a little bit myself. I want to do just a little bit. No, there's nothing to be done. It's all been done. Three of the greatest words in Scripture are the three words, it is finished. And when Christ died on the cross, the work of redemption was fully accomplished. There was nothing to add to it. Flip back to Romans chapter 6. Let's be sure that we are thinking clearly about the relationship between gifts and wages. Verses 20 to 23. Paul says, For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness, but what fruit were you getting at the time from the things of which you are now ashamed? For the end of those things is death. But now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the fruit you get leads to the sanctification and its end, eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Now that's a phrase that's probably familiar. The wages of sin is death. What does that mean? It's the answer to the question, what do you earn by your works. Wages are what you earn. And the only thing that we can earn for ourselves in our fallen condition is death. Salvation has to be a free gift because there's nothing that we can do to earn it and there's nothing that we can add to it. Look at a couple of other verses, Romans 4.4. 4. Just flip back a page or so. 
Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. If you've earned your wages, then you get paid. But if it's a gift, it's not something you earned. It's not something that you can earn. And then I'd also like to look at a portion of John 6, starting in verse 60. This is a critical turning point in the ministry of Jesus. A bunch of those who have been following him are about to walk away. When many of his disciples heard it, they said, This is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? But Jesus, knowing in himself that his disciples were grumbling about this, said to them, Do you take offense at this? Then what if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life, but there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning who those were who did not believe him and who it was who would betray him. And he said, This is why I told you that no one can come to the Father unless it is granted him by the Father. After this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. Very clear teaching on the futility of works righteousness. We cannot earn our salvation. Jesus has taught through these first few chapters about the work of the Spirit. And here he says explicitly that it is the Spirit who gives life and that the flesh is nothing, is no profit. So as we begin to close the loop on our study of Genesis today, let's go back to our original thinking. We said that one of the reasons for Genesis is that it helps us to answer the hard questions. It helps to bring clarity out of our confusion, especially in our fallenness. And has it done that? Are we beginning to see how it sets the foundation for our faith? We learn something about who God is. We learn something about who we are. We're beginning to learn what God has done for us. We begin to see how In salvation, we're being renewed after the image of Christ. What was lost in the fall is to be regained and perfected. And that is the work of sanctification and glorification. As we bring our study today to a conclusion, I would like once one last time to go back to the book of Genesis, this time to chapter 22. 
I'm going to start at the beginning of the chapter and read the first 14 verses. This is the account of God calling Abraham to sacrifice his son Isaac. After these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, Here am I. He said, Take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. So Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey, and took two of his young men with him and his son Isaac. And he cut the wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. On the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place from afar. Then Abraham said to his young men, Stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again to you. And Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on, his, on Isaac his son. And he took in, the hand, uh, took in his hand the fire and the knife. So they went both of them together. And Isaac said to his father Abraham, My father. And he said, Here am I, my son. He said, Behold, the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for a burnt offering? Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. So they went both of them together. When they came to the place of which God had told him, Abraham built the altar there and laid the wood in order and bound Isaac his son and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then Abraham reached out his hand and took the knife to slaughter his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, Here am I. He said, Do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, seeing you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called the name of that place, the Lord will provide, as it is said to this day on the mount of the Lord, it will be provided. And that name that God reveals himself as is Jehovah Jireh. And I prefer the definite article in that, that the Lord will provide it. Not just that the Lord will provide as if it's a general expression, but the Lord will provide it. Provide what? Provide the sacrifice, the substitute. You see, every one of us is Isaac on that bed of wood. Was this a case of God telling Abraham to murder his son? No. Murder comes from the heart. It comes from hatred. Abraham loved his son and would not have harmed him. But the test was what? to discover whether God loved Abraham more than he loved his son and to realize that Isaac deserved to die for his own sin. And here is this picture in graphic form of God providing that substitute. It's the Lord Jesus 
who stands in the place of every sinner, taking the wrath of God, God putting His own beloved Son to death so that sinners can be saved and redeemed. Luther says this, and it wouldn't be much of a Reformation weekend if we didn't quote Martin Luther at least once. From the beginning of my Reformation, I have asked God to send me neither dreams nor visions nor angels, but to give me the right understanding of His Word, the Holy Scriptures. For as long as I have God's Word, I know that I am walking in His way and that I shall not fall into any error or delusion. Amen.